0: This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Friday, August 1st, 2008. I'm Caleb Brown. A newly emboldened Russia hopes to once again become a truly European nation as President Dmitry Medvedev makes overtures toward a new Russia-inclusive security framework. Stanley Kober, a research fellow in foreign policy studies at the Cato Institute, comments.
1: What the Russians are saying is that they are part of Europe. Um, they always have been. They look at the War of 1812 when they feel they helped rescue Europe. They look at World War II where they were a principal partner in the Great Alliance rescuing Europe. Um, they feel they are part of Europe. Um, When the Cold War ended uh, around 1990, in 1990, um, Cato co-sponsored a uh, conference in Moscow with the um, Academy of Sciences. And I distinctly recall one of the Russian academics saying, we will now be part of a global civilization that stretches from New York to London to Paris to Moscow to Vladivostok. This will be part of the global civilization. In other words, no more class struggle, no more division. The wall had come down, and we would now
0: be part of this global civilization. And I think, wasn't that, that was sort of a presumption that parties on both sides really made? I think so. I think there, there was a sense. But then
1: this idea of expanding NATO got underway. And the Russians felt they were excluded. They were told they had a voice and not a veto, that decisions were made without them. And Medvedev's proposal now is, look, he said in a speech in Berlin, um, Europe rests on three pillars. There's Europe itself, there's the United States, and there's Russia. And all of them are part of Europe. In other words, if you're going to have Europe and the United States, you must also include Russia where they're historically, where they're now. And my sense is, although I haven't seen a formal proposal yet, um, they're saying, look, we're basically giving you a second chance and you need us Um Uh, In his speech in Berlin, Medvedev referred to Russia's agreement at the recent Bucharest NATO summit uh, where Russia agreed to allow NATO to supply its forces in Afghanistan through Russian territory. Um, Medvedev said, look, we want you to win. We're
0: on your side here, but don't take us for granted. That was the gist of it. And how what has been the response thus far from uh, Europe and the United States? Obviously, there I-
1: hasn't been something really solid to respond to, and so people are are be, you know just kind of wondering about this and and so on. But my sense is the Russians are saying, look, you know as I said, don't take us for granted. Uh, we don't have to help you. We're doing this because we are on your side, but we don't have to. And also we have other options. Um, it is striking, for example, the Russians are now emphasizing um, the Russia-India-China relationship more and also now Brazil, this idea of Goldman Sachs, of the brick. Countries: Brazil, Russia, India, China, has been picked up, and there was a meeting of the BRIC foreign ministers in Yekaterinburg, Russia, about two months ago, uh, where they, uh, you know, they all got together, a standalone meeting, and then also at the G8 summit, at the sideline of the G8 summit, Russia, uh, Russia's leader met with the leaders of. Uh, India, China, and Brazil, and, they're, you know, and the Russian press and also in the Chinese, you could see this picture of them all together, and they were basically hinting: Look, you know, if you don't accept us as full partners, we can go in another direction.
0: Now, what does it mean that uh, Medvedev has met with Hugo Chavez from Venezuela and has, I guess, sold significant arms to Venezuela?
1: Yes, my sense here is when the Cold War ended, the Russians pulled out of Cuba, for example, and they said, look, you know, you've got your hemisphere, we've got our area, let's, you know, that's it. And so when we began expanding NATO, the argument was, you know, no, no spheres of influence. And my sense is the Russians are saying, okay, if, if there are not going to be any spheres of influence, you know, well, come back. So they're you know, striking deals with Venezuela. I mean, it goes both ways. That's also why I think they're cultivating Brazil. Actually, I think this relationship with Brazil now is much more interesting, even though it's getting less attention. That, but that, I, I, you know, I, I, I would monitor that.
0: How does the fact that Russia being an oil-rich country Uh, This run-up in oil prices, how does that compare in terms of being able to influence the politics of this situation versus being a major supply line for uh, U.S. forces in Afghanistan? Um, The run-up in oil prices has given Russia a lot of money.
1: Um, It is extraordinary. Ten years ago, Russia defaulted. Russia was really financially ill. Now Russia has recovered. Russia has the third largest foreign currency reserves in the world. That is an astonishing turnaround in 10 years. Um, And they hold a lot of American debt. And as people refer to other countries, you know, holding the debt. What happens if they sell the debt? What happens if they just don't want to buy the debt anymore? Well, then you have to pay higher interest rates to entice other people to buy the debt. And that's the, the main concern here. If we continue to run deficits, who is going to buy the debt? And if they hold the debt and or they've got the money with which to buy the debt and they don't want to, the interest rates go. We have become accustomed to all these people wanting to buy our debt because it's you know good credit risk and so on. But what if um, they decide they don't want to do it anymore? And to my mind, that's part of the benefit here. everybody has said Russia has obviously benefited from the run up you know in oil prices and that's right and they say well Russia just got lucky well, to a certain extent that's luck but they didn't squander the money and as I say, it is amazing to me that in merely 10 years they've gone from this situation in which they were flat on their backs defaulting and now the third largest foreign currency reserves in the world quite astonishing
0: what costs are mutually understood of the U.S. not being able to supply its troops in Well, if we can't supply, how do you maintain the troops? You've got to be able to supply troops in the field.
1: The The risk here is um, the supply lines through Pakistan are um, increasingly in question, given the instability in Pakistan. Um, so you want to have an alternative supply route. Um And this was something I wrote about four years ago in the Cato Handbook. It is why this was broached at the Bucharest summit. Uh, If you can't supply, then what can you do? Uh,
0: You've got to be able to supply your troops. Stanley Kober is a research fellow in foreign policy studies at the Cato Institute. You can read his recent analysis, Cracks in the Foundation, NATO's New Troubles, at Cato.org.